and welcome to another episode of Something Rhymes with Purple. Now I'm going to try and keep my tone really joyful and energetic and happy today, even though our subject is anything but, depending on your view of it, I have to say, because we're going to talk about death today, aren't we, Giles? We are going to talk about death and I'm quite looking forward to it. I, I'm going to talk death about... Death or the podcast? Well, in a way, both to be honest with you, when you get to my age, you become resigned to death. And I think you probably think about death more often. Mm -hmm. I've had a new approach to death since recently a friend of mine who is a Freudian analyst said to me, I saw you tweeting that your favorite occupation is arranging your bookshelves. And it's one of my favorite things. I love putting my books in order. Alphabetical order? uh, Well, uh, themes and then alphabetical within the themes. So, for example, all the biographies is is by surname of subject. Yes. Um, But then in other areas, history, it'll be by uh, years. You know, it'll be through history. So it, it, it depends. If, if it's faith, I do it by, by different faiths in, in alphabetical order of faith, you know. So Christian would become before Jewish, would become before Muslim. Okay. So it's, it's organised in that sort of a way. So you have to know your books inside out in order to... I, I love doing that. I have thousands and thousands of books. I don't necessarily read them. In fact, I, I've very, I've, there's not much time for reading by the time I've sorted them out. So I love to sort them out and I, I have them very straight on the shelf and they come right to the edge and I enjoy doing that. And my Freudian friend said, ah, you're thinking more and more about death, I see. I said, what do you mean? He said, ah, people do this. They organize their books because they think that's how they can control their life. It's an it's a mark of trying to put this order. It's a little bit like a pregnant woman nesting, isn't it? Sort of oh. getting ready. Oh, is that what um, pregnant instinctively. women do? Yes, oh. we nest. Well. We do. We sort of just clean our house, get it sort of, you know, ship shape well, people, for the new arrival. People like me who are on their way closer probably to death than you, barring accidents, like me, uh, we are organising our bookshelves to make them neat and tidy. And, of course, my friend said to me, there's nothing you can do about death. It is inevitable. Mm-hmm. So just hang a bit loose. You needn't spend all this time organising your bookshelves to that extent. As Shakespeare says in Hamlet, all that lives must die passing through nature to eternity. Beautiful. It is beautiful. So we've got to accept it. But we find it difficult to accept, don't we? What is yes. the language of death? Well, it depends when you're talking about, because um, go back to uh, the Middle Ages and the relative normality of death meant that there was no need for the euphemism that we employ today. And in fact, they were pretty obsessed with death. Because so in the Middle manuals. Ages, everybody, everybody, well, everybody always dies, but then they died much younger. I mean, the, the, the sure. people died in their 20s and 30s, yeah. and many people, they might have 10 children, but half of them or more I know. would die. Very, very sad. And there would be not just graphic portrayals of dying, but also manuals that were designed to educate you on how to die in a graceful and proper manner. And the thing you're going to quote for me, what period does it come from? Uh, this is, um, again, going back to the Middle Ages, La Danse Macabre was the dance of the dead. And aller à la danse macabre in French was to 
to do the dance of the dead. It was a, it was a euphemism, sort of euphemism for uh, for dying. Um, and you have to remember that nursery rhymes at this time. We've talked about this a little bit when we talked about euphemisms, but they were full of allusions to dying. You remember the death and burial of poor Jack Robin, who caught his blood. I said the fly with my little dish. I caught his blood and ring a ring of roses, etc. So death then was fairly natural and described in a very matter of fact way. It's only now when it's it's less immediate, I suppose, in our daily lives now. It's still there, but Isn't, we... Didn't it know. begin in the Victorian age, this using euphemisms for death? I mean, um, what you're saying, in the olden times, death was part of life, very much part of life. Yeah. Because you died young, your children, many of them, will have died. You had to accept it. Mm. And you're saying as the years have gone by, our lives have become longer, death is more unusual, mm. we are nervous about confronting it. Which is strange when you think about it, because, you know, video games, TV programmes, films, you name it, you know, have really violent imagery all to do with death. So in that in that way, we're exposed to it all the time. And Except yes, it doesn't seem real, because you know yes, they bounce back. They they're just cartoon figures. That's I mean, they're true. there. I see my grandchildren firing guns at the TV screen from little consoles, and people fall off cliffs, and but they bounce back up again. Mm. And maybe they assume that, boom, they're going to bounce yeah. back up. yeah. Uh, are you it's quite a difficult thing, isn't it, for kids to grapple with that, actually, especially when they think about their parents dying. Yeah. I find there's a sort of twin thing with kids. And I don't know about you, but I used to fantasise about being an orphan, not because I hated my parents, but because there were so many stories. But because about they orphans. hated you. <laughs> probably. <laughs> That's a joke. Uh, no, they probably did. They loved you. Um, but so many stories and sort of popular imagination to do with being an orphan. It was somehow very romantic and I was such a romantic fantasist well, as a child. Well, those Victorian writers like Hans Andersen and earlier the Brothers Grimm. Yeah, they were pretty they brutal. They are. There are some grim stories yeah, there. Are. there. I there mean, We've even, sanitised them completely, haven't we? What is the one Little Red Riding Hood? Mm. Doesn't she go? Isn't she going to be eaten up? By she the, is eaten, isn't she? she? By the wolf. And then in modern, more modern tales, she's rescued yeah. and reunited with her mum. Oh, no, she's, that's right. She's eaten and then Somehow somebody splits, splits the belly of the wolf. And out she comes again. So reborn. Totally alive. Well, Despite having been masticated. <laughs> but interestingly, yeah. if you go back, we mustn't get too deep here, but if you go to the origins, you know, the source of the Christian faith, it is all about rebirth. Mm. You know, we're, you're, you're going to be born again. Mm. You may die on this world, but there will be a future world in which all will come well. Yeah. So now let's just talk about how we talk about death today. Okay. Uh, one of the things that does irritate me is people using the word pass. Uh, so-and-so has yes. passed. I heard it on the news the other day. If they, they've not passed, they have died. If they'd passed, they could pop in. Yeah. If they're just passing, oh, it's do pop in. You can't say, no, it's, it's a funeral. They, they've not passed, they've gone. Yeah. Let's face it. But I suppose the thing with euphemisms is they're trying to be kind. But passing is not a phrase I like. No, I, I agree. It's just, it's not real, is it? It's that, again, it's that one step removed um, linguistic distancing that we have. Well, should we just... Talk about some of the uh, euphemisms for what might happen before we get to the cremation stage. Oh, yes, popping your um, clogs. Popping clogs, counting the daisies. Popping clogs, I, nobody quite knows where that comes from, except your clogs probably fall off or when you're your, or do your, horizontal. Do your feet clogs explode? Clogs once do very, your... very common factory wear. So clogs were much more a part of daily life when this idiom was invented. Um, yeah, everyone wore clogs. Everyone wore clogs, particularly but in But popping your clogs, could it be that, I mean, 
is this an urban myth that you explode in things? It's not an urban myth that after that you can... I, I know this because for one of my murder mysteries, I did some research and went to a morgue. And you can go to a morgue where there are dead bodies that suddenly sit up. Arms move. Because before or as rigor mortis is setting in, still muscles can twitch. And so I've, I've actually seen a bit of that happening. So popping your clogs could be something to do with... Well, possibly. I don't know. Possibly. Um, we talk about... Um, biting the dust. Biting the dust, kissing the ground, snuffing it, being written out of the script. Um, and of course, there's that wonderful Monty Python sketch. The dead parrot sketch, oh. uh, which is absolutely fantastic. So, um, you know, and and yet the act of murder has got much more sort of um, direct, vivid imagery attached to it. Putting daylight through somebody, knocking them off, erasing oh. them, liquidating them, wasting, whacking them, wiping them out. Murder, of course, was once applied in ancient law to secret murder. That was the unlawful killing. Open murder of somebody to wrong a right was absolutely fine. But murder was secret murder that um, that was outside the, the um, confines of the law. What is the origin of the word murder? Murder is um, Germanic, mordor. Meaning uh, death. Meaning death. Um, so to murder someone is to bring death to them. Uh, absolutely. Um, actually, it's Maud in German. I'm getting mixed up with Tolkien. Uh-huh. Uh, it's Maud. Maud. But yes, it's linked to that. It's all got Germanic origins. Um, snuffed I have to it. Say, I like snuffed it. Snuffed it. Snuffed it's in like, the candle of life. It's like a candle. The candle of yeah. life is, is snuffed out. Shuffled off this mortal Shuffled coil. Shuffled off this mortal coil. That's Shakespearean, isn't it? Yeah. See, yeah. So that's... I, I would I mean, just say... Some of I... these phrases, in fact, are not euphemisms. They're poetic in a way. They're elegant ways of phrasing it. I suppose they're, that's they're true, quite but they're vivid still slightly deodorising, aren't they? They are. Um, when you're I dead, went D-E-A-D. for my book, um, Modern Tribes, Dense Modern Tribes, where I talked about the jargons of different communities. I went to visit um, some undertakers who were wonderfully funny and full of, full of really black humour. And they talked about, uh, I mean, I don't think they'd ever actually encountered one of these, but somebody who... Uh, wanted to be cryogenically frozen so that they may be revived in later life. Um, once dead, they were known as corpsicles, which is brilliant. Because they're like icicles. But they do, you see, even they use euphemisms as well. So they talk about their furniture for the coffins. Would you like to come and see the furniture? Mm. Um, which is quite strange. And the corpses are known as customers. Death-related language, though. Deadlines. Got to meet the deadline. Deadline. That's quite grim, isn't it? Where does that come from? I think it's time for a break and then I'll come back and tell you about the original deadline. It's quite morbid. Oh, There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying (laughs) to pretend that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) And we agree on some things but not on everything. Oof. 
I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Giles, welcome back. We're both eating bananas. We are. We're having a banana because we're celebrating life as we talk about death. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping to live forever. Are you? I'm wanting to be the first of the great immortals. Wouldn't that be lovely? Well, it would be interesting. Maybe, I don't know, as the line is, to die must be an awfully big adventure, comes from Peter Pan. It's interesting. Yeah. Peter Pan, written in 1904, great classic, right from the beginning, children's play. It confronted the idea of death, mm-hmm. and it was a play written for families, for children. But now we, I think, rightly protect children from the idea of you don't want to alarm and frighten children uh, before they're ready for it. When you reach my age, you need to think about these things. You need to make sure you've got a will that you're planning for the future. So it's it's simple for your children. But they're living forever. I think that's why we're slightly obsessed with vampires in modern culture, because uh, they are pretty much immortal, aren't they? Yes. As long as they get enough blood. We have. Did you tell me the origin of deadlines? Oh, no. So deadline, um, as I say, quite a morbid beginning because the original deadline was a line drawn in the sand around a military prison and any prisoner who went beyond that line was liable to be shot. Gosh. Mm. Um, I remembered a couple of more things that I picked up from funeral director's jargon. Um, You've probably heard of Ashkash, which is any priest or person... Conducting a religious service, a funeral service, we'll get a little bit more if the person is cremated. And there are cremains, the cremains of the day. Forgive me. Um, Ashkash. You get more if someone is cremated than if they're buried? I think so, yeah. I think you do. I think so. Ashkash? Yeah. Ashkash. Well, doctors definitely do. I know doctors, in return for filling in forms sanctioning the release for cremation they definitely get ash cash and i think priesty too any anybody in the uh, listening in a religious capacity will be able to let me know but i, I think, think so. yes do let us know if you are somebody who collects ash cash i think it's more likely to be a doctor signing a certificate saying this person is dead and they therefore can be cremated because hmm. you once they're cremated it's all all the evidence is gone hmm. you know there were one of the disadvantages of leaving the european union if we are, we don't know quite where we are now, but if we are, is that we will no longer be bound by the European coffin regulation of 2002, which requires air holes in every coffin. Oh, and we haven't even begun to talk about Saved by the Bell. Nothing to do with people being buried with bells. Apparently it did happen sometimes, but Saved by the Bell um, is more oh, not a the boxing idiom and the graveyard shift does not come from graveyard diggers sitting by the grave in case that bell was rung either so lots of lots of stories apocryphal stories relating to death but the good news is that if you die and you're dead buried ringer. that's another one sorry carry on what's dead, ring, really dead ringer nothing to do with the with those graveyards either those graves it's what? everything to do with a, a racehorse that was a dead spitting image of another that was put into a race and uh, often did it was the dark horse often did much much uh, better than the horse it was people the, thought it was it that's was a terrible way ringer. of explaining no I've it got it clearly ringer. it okay. looked exactly like yes yeah very good. Uh, if you are buried in a European Union approved coffin, yes. there will be air holes. Okay. And that means that you can you don't need to panic. People apparently panic about being buried alive. Yes. Well, can and you to, imagine? To reassure them, there are these tiny air vents in every European Union approved coffin so that you can go on breathing comfortably, feeling reassured until the very moment when the casket hits the furnace. <laughs> 
Where to go? Where to go? Where to go to the questions from our listeners or queries. Okay. Uh, That's a nice one. Well, um, we have a long, lovely email from Brandon Islaib or Islaib. Um, Apologies if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, uh, Brandon, but you are listening from Seattle, uh, where you work as one of the city's two legislation editors. And mm, it's interesting. And just, just, it's just quite interesting. He's just asking whether there's a tipping point, um, at which a word or idea has gained enough acceptance to start cementing it in writing and particularly in law. Um, I don't know if there is a specific tipping point. Um, some people will say it's when a word enters the dictionary if it's used enough, because obviously dictionaries chart usage rather than what's correct and what's incorrect. Um, but I don't know if there's, I, I think it has to be a point where a lot of people will understand it. Um, and if you're in law, then obviously it's people who are operating within that capacity. But the reason I love his email as well is because he says the best word in the Seattle Municipal Code is woo-nerf. Now, I had to look this up. Woo-nerf, That's spelled W-O-O-N-E-R-F. W-O-O-N-E-R-F. And it's a Dutch word for a living street. But in Seattle, it means traffic calming measures. So I think it's speed bumps. But in the living streets, they have shared space, traffic calming, low speeds, limits, etc. They were called sleeping policemen for a while, weren't they? Those were, yes. That was a sinister Woo-nerfs. thing to call them. Woo-nerfs are sleeping policemen it's good. or it traffic the, calming measures. Dutch. And the good news is, apparently those traffic calming measures are terrible for your car. And well, for you know the, that, don't you? Yes, uh, for your suspension. For, for, for the suspension and also for the atmosphere, because you let oh, out yeah, more course. as you bump over them. Of so course. that's the end of sleeping policemen. They're dead. Have you got any there? No. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, I'm ready to I have, I'm, I'm ready I have, to have one. All the, all the questions. Well, one of them asks, I think we must have talked about orphaned negatives in the past. Does this ring a bell? Orphaned negatives being um, underwhelms, gormlesses, unkempt, etc. And uh, we have a question from Leon Daniels. I'm also on the trail of opposites. I hope you can discuss whether there really are opposites of words like inertia. Even Sir Humphrey and Yes Minister was forced to define inert as not ert. Well, actually, there was a verb to ert. Um, in the olden days, it comes from uh, much. Remember the other day, I said that to egg somebody on comes from the Viking egian, meaning to incite or urge. Well, to urge meant pretty much the same thing: to urge on or encourage. Um, so you could urge in the olden days, and to be inert, I suppose, is to be without. You know that sort of capacity. But in fact, the urge there is is all to do with art. Um, art being the sort of art of movement and a sort of process or method. So inertia sadly, does not then produce Ursha, much as I'd love it to. I've had an amusing email from Julie in Dover in Kent. It's a notice she saw in an office. The notice read, would the person who took the stepladder yesterday please bring it back or further steps will be taken. (laughs) Very good. I like that too. Craig Roberts. Now, Craig is such a loyal fan of Countdown. He hears the best dog in the world, a guide dog called Bruce, who is um, my soulmate in the Countdown studio because he comes with Craig and I always give Bruce biscuits. I'm not sure he's supposed to give guide dog biscuits, but anyway, I always give some to Brucey because he's just a beautiful, beautiful um, golden Labrador. Anyway, Craig has written in to say, hi, Susie and Giles. My question for Susie is, how do certain medical conditions originate in terms of their names. As I have a visual impairment, I wondered the, of the, about the origins of glaucoma. Ah, and is it glaucoma or glaucoma? Oh, that's an interesting one. I'd say glaucoma, but I suppose it depends on where the word comes from. Well, it comes from 
the Latin and ultimately Greek, so it's got a classical heritage. I would say glaucoma myself. Good. If you'd say it, that's um, what I'll say. And it goes back to glaucus, which is an old adjective meaning bluish green or grey. Um, and in botanical terms, it means covered with bloom. It's sort of covered slightly with a almost like a film mm. um, in front of your well, eyes. It describes it rather well, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, so it's obviously increased tension of what they call the globe of the eye. It was formerly used to denote cataracts, so the cataract bit makes sense. Um, so thank you, Craig, for writing in and I look forward to seeing you in the Countdown Studio very soon. Good. I'm going to give you one little game that somebody has said to me, do you know this game? I do know this game. I didn't invent it. It's been going for years. But this is uh, somebody who's written in called Alan, who uh, it's, it's the I'll be with you game. Do you know this game? No. I'll be with you in two shakes, said the Freemason. You know, they're famous for their Very funny good. handshakes. I'll be with you in an instant, said the marketing man. Mm-hmm. Do I get that one? Yeah. Not sure I do. I'll be with you in two secs, said the hermaphrodite. <laughs> you get it? Hey! That's very good. I'll be with you in a trice, said the third man. I'll be with you in half a tick, said the vivisectionist. Ooh, oh, that's subtle. Half that a tick. Subtle. Oh, my goodness. I'll be with you in half a mo. Give you a clue. Half a mo, spelled M-H-O. I'll be with you in half a mo said the electrician. I'll be with oh. you in next to no time, N-E-C-K-S, next to no time, said the executioner. I'll be with you in a twinkling, I said. You know, that two sex thing reminds me of uh, Rachel and I on Countdown decided we were, were going out to the Christmas party and so we invited people on Twitter to come up with good names for Countdown Clocktails and the best one, the one that won was 30 Sex on the Beach. Oh, I like it. I love that one. Very good. Um, yeah. It's time, I think, for your trio. It is. Susie's trio. These are three words that you think are intriguing and that we might like to know more about and we can use to enhance our vocabularies. That's what we're keen on. So, my three words. Do you ever talk about your chums? I do often. Yeah, slightly oh, dated term, I was going to say, but maybe not. very dated term. Okay. I am an enthusiastic supporter of the work of Charles Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Charles Hamilton was the most prolific writer of the 20th century, a lifetime output of many millions of words. If he's remembered at all, he is remembered as the creator of Billy Bunter, the fat owl of the remove, oh. a pupil at Greyfriars School. This man, Charles Hamilton, under the name of Frank Richards, he had about 40 different pen names. He wrote for the comics, the gem and the magnet from the 1900s, right up to the 1930s, and then subsequently he wrote novels, mainly about Billy Bunter and Bessie Bunter, Billy Bunter's sister. And he went on doing that till he died in about 1960. Anyway, chums, Uh that was very much his sort of word. At school, Billy Bunter had chums. Okay, well, I don't know whether this was true of you both, but actually chum goes back to chambermate. So it was somebody with whom you shared, first of all, your bedroom or your digs or, you know, a sort of a, a mate in uni, that kind of That's absolutely thing. right. Billy Bunter yeah. and his chums, they were at boarding school. They were all in together. So it's your chambermate. Hmm. Your chum. Chum. Very good. Okay. So um, have you ever been described as zany? I have before. That's zany. a word I do know dates back to crazy people. It dates back to Shakespeare. And his yes. zanies, as is, 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 in Twelfth Night, I know there's a line about zanies. Yes, they were comic performers who would accompany a clown or an acrobat who would imitate um, their master's acts, I suppose, in a ludicrously awkward way. They used to be called Merry Andrews. 
Oh, Mary Andrew. Or Jack Puddings sometimes. Oh, right. And they were kind of professional jesters or buffoons. And they take their name from the Latin Gianni, which itself was a shortening of Giovanni. And in Italian comedy, basically, this was the stock character role of Gianni, who would act like a buffoon on stage. This links up with the famous Commedia dell'arte. Exactly. The Italian theatre that had yes. these stock figures, Harlequin, Pantalone. Columbine, Pantaloon, yes. the ridiculous old man, the zany. Yes. And they, that in, in fact, eventually gave us our pantomime from these characters. Mm-hmm. Brought over, I think, the Commedia dell'arte to this country with the restoration of King Charles. Oh, interesting. And they came over from France and Italy. But zany as a word goes yeah. back far further than that. So a zany, if you are a zany, it means you're slightly kooky. Yes, and it's an adjective, isn't it, nowadays? He's a, he's oh, he's zany, meaning you're a bit kooky. Little, yeah. But a zany was a comic character. A comic buffoon on the stage. Yes, like I a think we've lost the buffoonery. Like a, a Jack, I love Jack Pudding. Jack Pudding's Pudding. great. Tonight. I love Jack. I think Samuel Pepys talks about Mary Andrews and Jack Pudding's. Mm. And my third one, have you ever swung your way from branch to branch by your arms? Sadly not. (laughs) I've never been a bit of a swinger Um, in any shape or form. Okay, well, if anybody does, they are... I mean, how often are you going to need this word? I just like it. You are brachiating. B-R-A-C-H-I-A-T-E is the infinitive. That's the the verb. Brachia is a branch, isn't it? Exactly. Because in your your body, you have... And botanically, it's it's uh, branches. Absolutely right. And in in your body, your 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 blood vessels, they're referred to as different brachial bits and bobs. Absolutely right. And you mentioned your friend's hinge and hinge and bracket the other day. The brackets that we use in punctuation are the little arms at the end of the bit that you are inserting. Oh, um, yeah, in brackets. Oh, I love it. Now that curiously, this is why it's worth listening to the end of these podcasts because sometimes <laughs> the best bit comes at the end. The bracket, as in closed brackets, open brackets, is to do with branches. It's to do with arms and arms. Yes, yeah, same, and same idea. Around the limbs, limbs at the end of. So your three words this week are chums, mm-hmm. as in cheerful chums. Zany, zany, as in we like to be a bit zany, and... Brachiate. Brachiate. Using your arms, brachiate means. Yes, it means to swing, well, really, to, to swing from the branches. To, to, um, to swing from the branches is yes, to brachiate. It's to brachiate. But in botanical terms, as you say, it just means having arms, having branches and pairs running out at near right angles with each other so they look like a pair of arms. We have to swing out of the arms well, of speak our... speak for yourself. <laughs> no, no. We have to swing out of the arms of our listeners for another week. Uh, we'll be back next Tuesday with something rhymes with purple. God willing, if death doesn't intervene. Ooh. But if it does, would you carry on, please, without me? Well, likewise. Yeah, we will. We'll ca- in fact, I'll dedicate... Empty chair. Empty, Empty chair. chair me. We'll dedicate the programme to you. I'll tell <laughs> you all the things I meant to say to you, but never quite got round to. Yeah, I'll say a few words at your funeral. Will you say a few words at mine? Happily. Well, sadly, obviously. Yes, in fact, you can introduce three... <laughs> in fact, you could have three good words to bring along to the funeral. Make them, make them laugh. My trio. Yeah, because you're my chum. Be a bit zany. And you can embrace me. OK, we're swinging away now, we brachiators. Something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production produced by Paul Smith with additional production from Lawrence Bassett, Steve Ackerman and Gully. One day we'll discover what those three people do.